Hey everyone, and welcome back to Crisis of Crime. I'm your host, Rachel Means, and I'm a criminologist. Thank you so much for joining me for my weekly podcast where I discuss issues related to the criminal justice system. Today I want to talk about the war on drugs. I'll start with the history of the legal status of drugs in the United States. Next, I'll compare two views on how and when the war on drugs started. And finally, I'll discuss how we can stop the war on drugs. Let's go ahead and get started. Opium came to America from China at the turn of the century. We started seeing opium dens popping up in California and eventually reaching New York City. Opium dens were used to buy and sell opium products. Products derived from opium that we use today include common narcotics, such as morphine, fentanyl, and codeine. Opium is extremely powerful and addictive, and it ultimately created the nation's first drug epidemic. In 1875, San Francisco passed the first drug law in America to try to stop the spread of opium dens. The first national drug control law was the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906. This act was created as a response to two factors. First, there was a national outcry to a publishing by Upton Sinclair titled The Jungle, where he called out companies for including toxic materials in their products and manufacturing plants for their unsanitary conditions, especially meat processing plants. Second was the increased in patented medicines that included drugs such as opium and cocaine. A famous patented medicine was Mrs. Winslow's Soothing Syrup, a tonic used to soothe infants while they were teething, Ingredients included morphine and alcohol. The Pure Food and Drug Act required that all food and drugs sold must contain a label with a full ingredients list, something that we still have in place today. In 1914, the Harrison Narcotic Act was enacted into law and required that all importation and production of products with opium and coca, or more commonly known as cocaine, were regulated and taxed. It also required that drugs such as opium or coca could only be used for medical purposes, which is what we still have today. This act classified certain drugs as controlled substances. In 1937, marijuana was added to the list of controlled substances. With these new drug laws in place, the United States needed to move to create its first drug enforcement agency, and it was titled the Miscellaneous Division of the Bureau of Internal Revenue within the Treasury Department. It was within the Treasury Department because, initially, the biggest factor was that these drugs were being taxed while also being regulated. In 1930, this department was renamed the Federal Bureau of Narcotics, and then in 1973, we see that replaced with the Drug Enforcement Administration, or the DEA, which we still have today. How and when did the war on drugs start in the United States? According to Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, the war on drugs is one of the biggest contributors to mass incarceration in the United States. Alexander argues that the war on drugs was officially started in October of 1982 when President Ronald Reagan declared in an address that the nation was at war with drugs. After his declaration, law enforcement budgets began changing quickly. Millions of dollars went towards anti-drug efforts while millions were taken away from drug rehabilitation and prevention programs. 
The Reagan administration collaborated with news media outlets to exaggerate the presence of crack cocaine in the inner cities, places that were already suffering from systemic racism resulting in high unemployment rates and low industrial growth. After the smear campaign by the news media and the Reagan administration, the few industries that were left in the inner cities began to pull out. This was also at the same time that many industries were beginning to globalize and have their products made in other countries for a fraction of the price. This left unemployment rates, especially among black men, even higher. With the decline of employment opportunities for those residing in inner cities, selling drugs became a viable option for income. This is a classic example of the strain theory. When we dig deeper beyond the surface level, we see that the Reagan administration wasn't only inciting a war on drugs, but they were also increasing the racial divide of Americans. The tactics used by the news media to incite racial divide were done by running stories where black people in the inner cities would be described as crack whores or welfare queens or gangbangers. Because of the news media campaigns showing the crack epidemic in the inner cities involving essentially only black people as the dealers and the users, Reagan was able to use dog whistle politics to send a message. And that was when he was talking about the war on drugs and how it's us versus them, What he really meant was it's us, the white middle class people, versus them, the black people in the inner cities. It's ironic because studies show that white people tend to be heavier users of illegal drugs compared to black people. Let's take a listen to a clip from the Reagan Foundation of Ronald Reagan addressing the nation about the war on drugs. America has accomplished so much in these last few years whether it's been rebuilding our economy or serving the cause of freedom in the world. What we've been able to achieve has been done with your help, with us working together as a nation united. Now we need your support again. Drugs are menacing our society. They're threatening our values and undercutting our institutions. They're killing our children. Today, there's a new epidemic. Smokable cocaine, otherwise known as crack. It is an explosively destructive and often lethal substance which is crushing its users. It is an uncontrolled fire. And drug abuse is not a so-called victimless crime. Everyone's safety is at stake when drugs and excessive alcohol are used by people on the highways or by those transporting our citizens or operating industrial equipment. In this clip, we hear Reagan say that drugs are threatening our values undercutting our institutions, and killing our children. Because of the rhetoric the Reagan administration used in its media campaign against the war on drugs, to those listening, when he says our, he really means upper-to-middle-class white people. But this idea of us versus them resonated and still resonates today with poor white people especially. White supremacy has done a great job of convincing poor white people to vote against their own interests. We will talk about this more in a moment when we talk about President Clinton's reforms to welfare. Reagan goes on to talk about crack cocaine, saying it's an uncontrolled fire, and that it's not a victimless crime, saying that everyone's safety is at risk as long as there is drug abuse occurring. This language can be seen as fear-mongering to further the racial divide between black and white communities. Michelle Alexander argues that President Richard Nixon helped set the stage for President Reagan's war on drugs. Let's take a listen of a clip from the Richard Nixon Foundation of Nixon addressing the nation on his view on drugs. America's public enemy number one 
in the United States is drug abuse. In order to fight and defeat this enemy, it is necessary to wage a new all-out offensive. I have asked the Congress to provide the legislative authority and the funds to fuel this kind of an offensive. According to Alexander, by Nixon calling drug abuse public enemy number one, he was setting the stage for Reagan's war on drugs. But we have to remember that Nixon made this address during the Vietnam War. When he gave this speech, his concerns were more along the lines of drug trafficking and soldiers becoming addicted to opioids while serving overseas. Nonetheless, the rhetoric that Nixon used was likely helpful in setting the stage for Reagan's war on drugs. When Bill Clinton was running for president, he realized that he too had to be tough on crime and to continue the war on drugs if he wanted to get elected. And Clinton wasn't just kinda tough on crime. He became one of the hardest hitters in history. Clinton helped change the landscape of the criminal justice system as we know it with his 1993 crime bill. Most notably, he enacted a three-strikes-you're-out rule, requiring that if someone is charged with three federal capital crimes, they automatically receive a life sentence. He also signed the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunities Reconciliation Act, which changed the entire welfare system. He also created a new program that made it so families only had a five-year lifetime limit for welfare benefits and food stamps, and also that anyone convicted of a drug felony could not receive these benefits. This put people, especially black people in the inner city, in an even harder place. With welfare benefits running out and no food stamps, families had to decide what to do in order to survive, and sometimes that meant turning to crime. As you'll remember from earlier, the lack of employment opportunities in the inner cities was helping to fuel the drug trade. And to make matters worse, Clinton also diverted money away from building public housing to building prison complexes. Additionally, he made it extremely hard for those with a criminal record to be eligible for public housing. Let's listen to a clip from the then First Lady, Hillary Clinton, talking about being tough on crime. But we also have to have an organized effort against gangs, just as in a previous generation we had an organized effort against the mob. We need to take these people on. They are often connected to big drug cartels. They are not just gangs of kids anymore. They are often the kinds of kids that are called super predators. No conscience, no empathy. We can talk about why they ended up that way, but first we have to bring them to heel. And the president has asked the FBI to launch a very concerted effort against gangs everywhere. In that clip, we hear Clinton comparing gangs to the mafia and how they were connected to big drug cartels, which is true. Gangs would often work with cartels to move illegal substances. But the problem is when she says, these aren't just gangs of kids anymore, and then she refers to them as super predators, with no conscience or empathy. When she refers to them as children, it's inferred that they're children in the inner cities, and from all the rhetoric throughout the Reagan and Clinton administrations, almost all white Americans are going to picture black or African American children. So Clinton has set the stage to create fear among white people of black children who grow up to be black adults. And she's telling white people that they don't have a conscience or any empathy. Lastly, she uses the word heal as a way to describe needing to get these super predators under control. And heel is most commonly used when talking about dogs. This rhetoric is further dehumanizing the individual she's referring to. 
this tactic of dog whistle politics resonates greatly with poor white Americans, essentially convincing them they should vote against their own interests. And it's not surprising that the Clinton administration cut welfare because even though poor white Americans needed those benefits, they were okay with losing them if it meant that these super predators and their people were losing them too. In previous episodes of mine, particularly the crime reporting methods and statistical manipulation and murder, history, motives, and reforms, I've talked about how systemic racism affects crime and what it actually looks like. It's people, especially black people and other minorities, being affected by a system that is built to oppress them. It's as if Bill Clinton looked at systemic racism and thought, how can we make this worse? Either way, he succeeded. Not only did his actions fuel the illegal drug market by forcing more people into poverty in conditions conducive to the strain theory, but he also dramatically increased to the prison population by enacting his new crime bill. John Pfaff, the author of Locked In, argued that mass incarceration was already on the rise before Reagan declared his war on drugs. In fact, by the time Reagan gave his speech declaring war on drugs, the prison population had already risen by 80% in the U.S. since 1972. Pfaff argues that we can't pinpoint an exact date for when the war on drugs began. Alexander argues that President Nixon set the stage for Reagan's war on drugs, But if we actually look at Nixon's policies, such as the Comprehensive Drug Abuse Prevention and Control Act of 1970, we see that even though he was using aggressive rhetoric against drugs, he was still pushing for more drug rehabilitation, and he abolished the federal mandatory minimums that were in place at that time. So if the war on drugs didn't start with Nixon, who did it start with? Well, Pfaff says we need to look at New York in 1973, and we see Governor Nelson Rockefeller pass the Rockefeller drug laws, which were the harshest that the country had ever seen. They included lengthy prison sentences for drug crimes as well as mandatory minimums. For example, in the original laws, it had mandatory minimums of 15 years to life for drug offenses. At first, prosecutors were hesitant to use Rockefeller's new laws when trying drug cases, But as the cultural shifts occurred throughout the nation leading more towards a tough-on-crime approach, prosecutors began using these new laws. With the cultural shifts happening throughout the country, even bigger shifts began happening at the federal level. And that's really the biggest difference between Pfaff and Alexander and how the war on drugs started. Pfaff argues that it was started at a local level, working its way up through the state and into the federal government to be seen in presidential administrations. Alexander argues the opposite, that it was more of a top-down approach, starting with Nixon and being emphasized by Reagan and Clinton. So what are your thoughts? Which approach do you think best explains how the war on drugs came about? So what can we do to stop the war on drugs? Should we decriminalize drug use or legalize it? Well, first we have to look at the crimes that are occurring in relation to drug use. Obviously, trafficking, selling, buying, and using illegal drugs are crimes that fall into this category. We see violent crimes occurring in pursuit of drug trafficking, such as opposing gang members murdering each other to expand their territory. We also see crimes such as driving under the influence of controlled substances. But there are also other crimes that happen as an effect of drug use that do not directly involve drugs. For example, there are those who commit non-drug crimes and attempt to afford their drug habit. 
This might be stealing an item of value from a friend or family member in order to pawn it off to afford their next drug purchase. So what would happen if we decriminalize drugs? When we decriminalize something, we no longer subject them to criminal charges, but rather civil charges. In doing this, courts could mandate that drug users are required to receive treatment, such as being admitted to a drug rehabilitation facility. But we wouldn't be decriminalizing drug trafficking and sales. So while we would be helping drug users rehabilitate themselves, we would still have the problem of illegal drug markets. We can assume that not every drug user is going to be admitted to rehab and that all those who receive rehabilitation will not relapse, so we will still have a problem with people buying drugs from illegal drug markets. Okay, so what if we legalized drugs? We would have to assume that if the sale of controlled substances was legalized, they would be sold out of legal establishments, the same as all other businesses who hire employees according to the law. This would greatly decrease the number of people who are involved in the sale of drugs. Since many people turn to selling drugs because of the lack of employment opportunities in the first place, we can also assume that those people will likely turn to another form of illegal activities in order to maintain their income. Now, FAF isn't saying that people want to be criminals and to be involved with illegal activities, but that systemic racism created circumstances where there were little to no employment opportunities that forced people to turn to different avenues, such as selling drugs to be able to support themselves and their family. And if we remove that employment opportunity with the illegal drug market, it will leave a vacuum to be filled with other illegal activities for profit if legitimate employment opportunities are not provided. Additionally, if drugs are legalized, there will be an increase in drug addictions and instances of DUIs. The way I see it, decriminalizing illegal drugs will help drug users rehabilitate, but will not help the illegal drug market situation we have in the United States. And legalizing illegal drugs will help stop illegal drug trafficking in the United States, but will be detrimental to drug users. Now, the truth is, ending the war on drugs isn't going to be as easy as decriminalizing or legalizing drugs. It's going to take a multidisciplinary approach that involves multiple organizations and departments. Some of them include drug rehabilitation and prevention programs, efforts for affordable housing and ending homelessness, prison rehabilitation programs, funding for education and youth programming, and more. For more information regarding these programs, please take a listen to my other podcast titled Murder, History, Motives, and Reforms. I talk about an initiative in Jacksonville, Florida that was aimed at lowering the murder rate. For the most part, the programs they talk about will also help lower all other types of crime, including drug crimes. All right, folks, so that's all for today's episode. I want to know your thoughts. How do you think we should address the war on drugs? And do you agree more with Alexander or Faf on how the war on drugs started? Be sure to let me know your thoughts on Twitter. You can find me at Crisis of Crime. I'm also very excited to announce that I finally launched the Crisis of Crime website. You can go check it out at crisisofcrime.com. If you're enjoying the podcast, please consider helping by supporting it by donating to Crisis of Crime through Patreon. You can find my page by going to patreon.com slash crisisofcrime, or you can find the link through the Crisis of Crime website by selecting the support tab. Anything you can give to help support the podcast is greatly appreciated. I'm going to be on a break for the next two weeks, but I'll be back with a new episode on August 10th. 
I'm working to get the Crisis of Crime YouTube channel off the ground, so stay tuned for some new videos on topics in criminology. I hope everyone is doing well and staying safe, and until next time, this has been Crisis of Crime.